Man, I don't know about you, but my heart is full this morning uh, just to be able to sing with my friends and to rejoice uh, about our Savior. And so can we just give the Lord a hand? We want to welcome those that are joining us online in our Edgewood campus. Today, we close our series, God in Everyday Life. Uh, it's been about 12 or 13 weeks, and today we're going to talk about a topic that applies to every single one of us. There's no one in this room that's exempt, young to old. This topic is one that we save to the very end. Uh, before I jump into that topic, I want to tell you a story about a gentleman at the very end of the 1800s who was gathered at his doctor's house in an upstairs room. And he said, Doc, I know that my days are coming to an end. I know that life is, is coming to the end. And he goes, and I know that you are a follower of Christ. And as a result, can you tell me something about the next life that would comfort my heart? The doc, the doc kind, of, kind of stumbled a little bit as he was kind of thinking. But all at once, he heard scratching on the door. And he said, hey, do you hear that? And the patient looked at him and he goes, yeah, I hear that. He goes, that's, that's, my, that's my dog. He said, my dog has grown impatient, and so I heard him scurry up the stairs, and as he did, he has scratched on the door because he's heard my voice all morning, and he's been waiting patiently. He can wait no longer. And he said, what you need to know about my dog is that though he can hear the master's voice, he has no idea what's on the other side of this door. And he said, and I presume that to be true for you. He said, though your years are coming to an end, and though you don't know everything that's on the other side of the door, I would tell you this. You know there is a master, and you've heard his voice, and you will get to see him on the other side of the door. Today, we're going to talk about the idea of God in everyday life, and the topic is make your death count. Make your death count. And you're like, well, what in the world? I came this morning to make my death count. Like, you're going to encourage me in that? And I would say, I'm going to encourage you. I believe God's going to convict many of us, and I pray that today is as meaningful as a message as you've heard a long time. Matter of fact, I've been thinking about this topic for so long that I've actually outlined it in a book with chapters ready to go for me to begin writing. It's a topic that over the years I've been involved in in lots of ways. I presume to believe that if I calculate it, I've done a couple of hundred funerals in the last 21 years of ministry. Um, and I would just say that this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart simply because as I have done funerals, oftentimes I've walked away and I've been somewhat confused. Confused at why a believer's funeral doesn't always give a legacy of Christ-centeredness. And today I just want you to think about what it looks like to make not just your life count as you'll be encouraged to do, but to make your death count. And today, I'm going to leave you with not only something to think about, but I'm also going to leave you with things to do. And so if you're in the very back and you're already tuning me out, hey, listen, friends, any point, just elbow your neighbor, say, hey, wake up. So everybody say, wake up. Listen, Easter's around the corner. I might as well get prepared and get you prepared for it as well. And so the reason that we are going to make our death count is because Christ made his death count. And not only did he make his death count, but because he rose again on the third day, this topic should be as important to us as any other topic that we've covered in the last handful of weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, join me with 
uh, your Bible and turning to Psalm 39. Friends, if you didn't bring a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one. If you don't have one to read every day, we would love to, to help you take advantage of that. So don't wander off of one of our campuses this morning without grabbing a Bible. We'd love to give you one free of charge that you have for yourself. I presume to believe too, if you have your Bibles, it might be a little difficult to follow me today. I'm gonna to be bouncing around from a variety of perspectives and places, so I encourage you to write it down and check every word that I share. Go back and test me on it. Make sure that I'm accurate. Don't just take my word for it. How's that? Cool deal. Psalm 39. This is David, the king of Israel. David is asking for some perspective. He starts out this chapter and uh, as he starts it out, he, he seems to be in a place where he is in the midst of some challenges uh, with potential people who have accused him falsely or maybe saying some difficult things about him to the point where he's kind of given us a scenario in his own heart and his mind that he better stay silent. Mamas, you ever told your kids, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything yet? That's where David seems to find himself. He doesn't really have anything good to say about where he is or about who surrounds him. Uh, it seems in some ways that he finds himself in standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers. And while he's there, he finally breaks his silence and he does so in verse four, which is where we'll start to, and he does it by prayer. We could learn something from that. Psalm 39, verse four, he says, "'O Lord, make me know my end "'and what is the measure of my days. "'Let me know how fleeting I am. "'Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, "'and my lifetime is nothing before you. "'Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath.'" And then he says, Selah. And when you see the word Selah there, it, it could denote a musical term that reflects a pause. But either way, when you see it, you should indeed pause and reflect. And that's what it's for. Now here is the king of Israel who finds himself in, in the place where he finds it difficult to say anything kind. And then he prays and he asks the Lord to help him see the measure of his days. In essence, he says, Lord, would you help me see how fleeting my life is, how short the span of my years stands to be. And then he says, behold, verse five, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Now you might not know what a hand breath is, but in ancient Israel, it was a measurement. It would have been a sewing device. And when you don't have a yardstick or you don't have a ruler, or a, a tape measure, then what do you do? You grab your hand breath. And your hand breath is literally your hand. And it's the breath of your hand from one side of your palm to the other. Uh, for you, it might be three and a half inches. For me, I presume to believe it's about four and a half inches. Whatever it is, though, it's a useful tool of measurement as you're sewing or as you're doing something. It's a hand breath. But in this particular context, what David says, Lord, help me to know the number of my days, that it's very short. He didn't say, like, Lord, help me know that it's a yardstick or it's a football field or that it's two kilometers, he goes, my life is like a hand breath. Like it's very short. It reminds me of what Jesus' brother James says in James chapter four, when he seems to be admonishing his audience when he says, hey, listen, there's a lot of you that are going from place to place saying a bunch of foolish things. And he said, what you're saying is, is I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. And you're forgetting the one who is in charge of the number of your days. Your days are short and they're fleeting and they're a hand breath. So you need to be careful what you say. In James 4, this is what he says to admonish them. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Come now, 
you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade in the market for a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For a, it's a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. He goes, listen, if, if you know that your life is short and is fleeting, then you probably need to stop planning as if it's going to be forever. He goes, even in our language, as we talk about, we're going to go on a vacation next year, or hey, sometime a year from now, we're going to be building a house. He goes, you just be careful of your language. Make sure that you know your perspective, that it's if the Lord wills, or if the Lord presumes that we would do that, then, then maybe that will happen. It's crazy because oftentimes I'll say, hey, I'll see you tomorrow. And then I almost always end it with this phrase, Lord willing, Lord willing. And I try to live my life that way. I, I try to think, you know what? This is gonna happen tomorrow, Lord willing. And the reason that you would add that is simply one, to position your heart before God and say, Lord, you're in charge. But more than that, it's just to remind yourself that our days are short that life is frail. Now, I bet most of us didn't come this morning thinking, you know what, let's learn about death. Because death is something that we, in some ways, want to push away. But yet it happens to all of us. Not only will we experience death physically ourselves, but also we've experienced death for many of us recently that it's fresh for some people in this room, that recently you've lost someone that you loved that was a meaningful part of your life. And there was nothing that could have prepared you for that. And all the prep in your life, in some ways, you can't prepare yourself for last conversations, for the desire to have one more phone call, for the desire just to, to sit with a friend or a mom or a dad or a spouse or an uncle or an aunt or a dear friend one more time, right? But here, here it is, David is saying, Lord, would you help me be prepared? Would you help me to number my days? Would you help me not to get ahead of myself, even as James would commend us and admonish us not to do? Matter of fact, in Psalm 39, David continues on in his prayer. In verse six, he says, surely a man goes about it as a shadow. Surely for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and they don't even know who will gather it. The idea what David is saying, he goes, we frantically chase things. And he says, it's like a mere shadow. You can't get your hands on it. Then he goes, and even as we chase wealth, he goes, we don't know whose wealth it'll finally be. Like if you think about why you go to work and you think about what you're gathering and about in some ways the things you're building, the question is what happens when your days come to an end? Who gets that? And is that your legacy? Is your legacy, man, he had a really nice place or is there more? And so he just says, we have to be careful. Verse seven, he goes on in Psalm 39. He says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? He says, my hope is in you. So Lord, in the midst of all this, Lord, would you help me to know life is fleeting? Will you help me to know not to chase things that won't last? And more than that, God, would you remind me that my hope is in you? And friends, that is really the purpose of this message this morning is that you and I would live our life and that we would rejoice in our death claiming these words, my hope, Lord, is in you. 
My hope, Lord, is in you. And I pray that you know that, and I pray that your kiddos know that, and I pray that your friends know that. And if they don't know that, then by God's grace, though our life is a mere hand breath, we get to use what final breath we do have to point people towards him. And so today, as I think about the idea and the topic of death, as it relates to you specifically, you specifically, I want you to be encouraged in three ways around your death. And I'm going to give you a load of things to think about and some homework along the way. But number one, I pray that your death, our death, reflects Christ. That our death reflects Christ. Now, real quickly, let me help you understand what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that as you read an obituary, it says John was of the Baptist faith. I hope that it doesn't mean Sally has been a Methodist all of her life. And friends, if, if, you ever, if you ever pay attention to obituaries, it will tell you a lot about their lives. And the very last part of it, it literally says one sentence. And then it, it equates them to be a member of a specific place or in some ways a denomination. And friends, I want you to, to go further than that. I want you to think about you and what your obituary would say. And how would your life reflect Christ, but more than that, your death it reminds me of what Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians. And it's a whole passage about the second coming of Christ, okay? So he's just saying, hey, Christ is coming. He's trying to encourage his friends, but listen to the language of this. I'll put it for you so you can see it. You can jot it down, make a note. If you're really fast, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter five because we're not going back to Psalm 39, okay? Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5 verse one and following. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Thank God. For, he says in verse two, in this tent we groan, long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Okay, here's what it means. He goes, listen, you have a tent that is the body you live in now. So everybody say tent. That's what you live in right now. It's a mere shadow. It's a tent. It's not going to last forever. It's fading. Matter of fact, to remind you that your tent is growing old and it's having a hard time keeping the rain out and that you're starting to see holes is that this morning you woke up and you're like, golly, I'm, my, my back hurts. Or this morning, some of you are like, I don't know why my calf feels like that. And that, I mean, almost every week, Kelly and I are like, oh yeah, like, I mean, like my, my, my hip is like hurting. I don't know what I did to it. Anybody, y'all, y'all relate? That's to remind you that your tent is growing old and that it's, it's gonna give out and that it's not gonna last forever. So he says, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. But listen, it's not merely in this body we groan, meaning, oh, it's pain and and hurt in our flesh. That's not, but we groan more than that, don't we? The longer we live, the more we're reminded of the sinfulness around us. The more that we're reminded of the world that we live in, a day of evil. The more we live, the more that we experience things in our heart that are deathly, meaning they they prick us to the core of our heart, that they sting and they hurt us the more we see relationships before our eyes dissolve, the more that we experience sin on earth, the more we're reminded, Lord, this can't be all there is. Surely, Lord, there's more. 
And Paul says, yes, there is something, a heavenly home that we long for. We groan in this tent. We look for a spiritual and heavenly dwelling. Verse three, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. And what he says, the longer that you live here in your flesh, the more that you desire to walk in the spirit. And more than that, he says, and more than that, you desire to be more clothed. Now, when I think about this passage, you could go to Colossians 3, which we won't do, but we're to be clothed in Christ. And friends, here's the deal. As Christ followers, the longer we live for him, the more we put on his attributes. And the more we put on his attributes, the more that we show others the reflection of God in us. We're clothed with kindness and humility and patience and love and forbearance. And the longer that we live in Christ, we realize that death, though imminent, is actually better by far. But the problem is, is that Christians aren't living like that today. We live far more like this is all that there is. And in many ways, we gather and we keep. And David, as the king of Israel, says, why do we do that? We're toiling and we don't even know whose stuff this is finally going to be. And so while we're commended and admonished to be careful of that, Paul just says all of this mortal life is going to be swallowed up. And that's why he says this in verse six. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, make it our aim to please him. He says, listen, whatever it is, whether you're here or you are absent from the body and you are with the Lord, he goes, either way, it is our goal to please him. It is our aim. It is our target. It is the bullseye, the center of our life. If we're here in the present life, our body's groaning, we await a heavenly home. Our aim is to please God. If God takes us home and we're absent from this physical tent, the body, it's no longer gone. It's no longer here. It's destroyed. It returns to dust as it came from, just as we had seen in Genesis chapter three. Then guess what? We are now at home with the Lord and we are secure in him. And our aim is to please him. So whether we are in the body or we are away from the body, whether we are on earth or at home with the Lord, our aim is still the same. What? To please him. It's to please him, which is why your life matters. And it's why that your, even your death should reflect Christ. If your life is meant to reflect Christ, guess what? Your death is meant to reflect Christ. Number two, though, our death should also point people to life. Death is oftentimes somber. If you gather at a funeral, oftentimes people wear black is a means to mourn. And in some ways, it's, a, it's just a reminder of how dark and depressing and how bleak death is. But listen, friends, for the Christian, death is not, it's, it's not dark. It's not bleak. It's actually a means to point others to a savior. It's as if you see a ship leave one dock, and as it leaves your eyes, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Smaller. I presume to believe that as it first starts out, it's very large, right? But the further it gets, the smaller and smaller until eventually it's distant and it's out of sight, right? The question is, is when that ship is out of your sight, does it mean that that ship is no more? Or do you believe that it's gonna land on a distant shore? 
See, that's true of our lives. Though they look to be no more, friends, we know that as believers in Christ, they land on a distant shore. And that, that life continues. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that means that the meaningful point of our life upon our physical death really does begin. Billy Graham says, when you read my obituary, you should note this, that I have been no more alive today than ever. And that is true in a Christian's death. That's a matter of fact why Paul writes these words in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he's talking about the second coming of Christ and he's talking about the trumpet sounding. This is what he says in verse 13. He says, but friends, brothers, hey, don't be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's just giving you the order of how it's gonna happen. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Underline that. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do you encourage others with these words for? He goes, listen, we don't grieve as if we have no hope. He goes, if Christ died and on the third day he was raised again, friends, we have incredible hope. Matter of fact, in case you didn't know, Easter is seven days away. And we're celebrating the resurrection. It is the most profound day in our lives for Christians. It is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're here next weekend, you'll hear this again. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds the Corinth church that, hey, death is no more. The sting has been taken away. It has been killed and crushed. Death, what's once your adversary, but it is no more. And then he reminds them, he says, if Christ did not die, and if he was not resurrected on the third day, then he says, there's a few things that would be true of you. He says, one, your faith would be futile. Two, he says, your gatherings would be in vain. Three, you'll never see your loved ones again because that won't exist. And more than that, you are the most of all people to be pitied. If the resurrection didn't happen, then death is the end. And not only is death the end, it's the end for you and for everyone else. And you should go do something else with your Sunday. But friends, we would say death is no more because it's been swallowed up in victory because of Christ and his death and because of his meaningful life and because of the fact on the third day he rose again. Friends, we don't grieve as if there is no hope. We grieve in knowing that though I have laid my friend to rest, I am confident that he is with the Lord in the present day. And more than that, I will see him again and we will rejoice at our homecoming and we will catch up and we will long to see Christ and to know more about him in ways we could never know about him now. And that's the hope we have. And so though we cry, our mourning is turned to laughter. And though we are sorrowful, our sorrow is turned to dancing. And we rejoice knowing that though life has come to an end, it has just begun on the other side of the hill. Which the question would be is, is that what people will believe about your death? What will they say? 
How will they grieve? Those are the things that matter. Matter of fact, as I get real practical here in just a moment, I think the question that you ask yourself is, will my death point to life? Who will my death be centered upon? I tell Kelly all the time, I said, listen, when I die, there's a few things I want you to do. One of those, though, is I want to be dressed in a purple suit with a gold chain. I want everybody to refer to me as reverend. You got that? (laughs) And then I'm convicted by that. And the reason why is because in my death, it shouldn't be about me. But listen, in life, I oftentimes make it about me. So I'm like, hey, why not just one more good laugh for everybody, right? But friends, if you come to my funeral and that's all you remember, then my funeral's been in vain. Or more than that, you come to my funeral and my funeral contradicts the life you saw in me, it was in vain. If you come to my funeral and all they talk about was the price of bread in 1981, because they have nothing more meaningful to say, then my life and my death was in vain. And I would presume to believe that we go lots of funerals and lots of funerals don't reflect the life that we should experience after death as followers of Christ. Which would just help you realize what Paul writes to the church of Philippi. Look what he says. He's writing to Philippi. He's in jail. And these are the words he says. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. He's rejoicing about persecution. That's what, he's, I mean, that's what he's rejoicing about. Things are not well, but hey, in all that, I'm gonna rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a chronic grumbler and complainer, okay? Not necessarily out loud, but in my head. Anybody else, like, you're like, that's probably me too, okay? Well, Paul wasn't that way. Matter of fact, out loud, he says, yes, I will rejoice. And then he says this, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Meaning I'm in jail and with the help of God, this will turn out for my deliverance, which means God is going to deliver me from this. Now, listen, not in the way that you and I want to sing about or pray about. Like we want to say, Lord, you're my, you're going to slay the giant and you're going to slay the giant of what? Jail. Or we're going to go further and say, Lord, you're going to get me out of here. You're not going to, you're not going to have, you know, have me go through these obstacles. But that's not what Paul says. He goes, It's gonna turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in what? My body, whether by life or by death. He goes, if you deliver me from this peril, which is the Roman prison, praise God. I presume to believe that I'm gonna be here for a while and they're probably gonna cut my head off. And then I'm delivered from this body of death and I praise God all more because I've been delivered. And then he says these words, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I'm gonna praise him now. And when I see him face to face, it'll be a great added bonus. Now, why does that matter? It matters because of how we live our lives and more than that, how we die. So here's your homework. Y'all ready for it? Like, I don't think I'm ready for this. If living for Christ is important, and we have scripture after scripture after scripture that would encourage us to live for Christ, my question is, is why wouldn't you want your death 
to point others to the Christ that you know and love. So what I'm basically pushing back on here is all of us in this room who would say, you know what, I don't care what you do with my body, just throw in the pine box. I'm gonna push back against that for a moment. And here's why. Because in that statement, all you're doing is acting out your selfishness. Because if in, in our life, we are to care and to love and, and to exude the characteristics of Christ, friends, why wouldn't we desire to do that in our death? And the question that you gotta ask yourself is, in my death, who am I caring for? Who are you caring for in your death? Friends, you're caring for those who you have been spending your life to love and to point towards Jesus. Why wouldn't you do that more in your death when you have no longer a voice to be shared? Matter of fact, in your death, I'm gonna just make the argument that it is the most profound and possibly the most meaningful words you could ever share and you won't be the one to speak them. But you can control what's done. And so for what I'm saying is this, if you're a follower of Christ, it would behoove you to make sure that you think about what's gonna be said of me, but more than that, what's my funeral gonna reflect? One of the most confusing things to me over the last 21 years are people who would say, well, I was at the Baptist faith and yeah, oh, Johnny, he became a Christian many, many years ago. And then there's nothing about his service that points people to Christ, talks about Christ. And then we listen to Nirvana and uh, the Beatles. And I'm like, I'm just confused, honestly. But isn't that most of our lives? We think if I go to church or I'm a member somewhere for 20 years and I'm on a roll somewhere, then that should count for something. And I would just say, friends in the kingdom, it doesn't count for anything. What counts? A life well lived and a death well celebrated. That counts. Now that might in some ways be unnerving to you. And the reason why is because one, we haven't thought much about it or more than that, death it's just a reminder of the pain we've endured. Friends, I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you this to scold you. I'm telling you this because death is imminent and it's, it's coming soon for us. And for many of us, you would presume to believe, well, it's sooner for them than it is for me. But I would just tell you that one of my best friends that I've ever had in life died before he was 40. And he's been gone now for a decade. his life was, was well lived and it was well celebrated. But it was because it was a reflection of who he was. But the question then is, is, okay, what about my life? Well, I would say first, make your life count now, but more than that, here in a second, I would just say, think about what, what's gonna be taking place at even your funeral. Is it gonna be a God-honoring message? Who's gonna do it? Not only who's gonna do it, but hey, what songs are gonna be sung? Hey, who's gonna be exalted there? And I would just think, think about that. And the reason why is because as we think about this, it's an opportunity to say something meaningful. Paul says, whether I'm at home and the body or I'm away to be with the Lord, hey, praise God. And I would say that should be true for us as well. And here's what I would say, that my last admonishment or warning or commendation to you would simply be this, the time to plan for our departure starts right now.
It starts right now. And you're like, come on, man. I'm like, no, it starts right now. And you might ask the question, well, why? Well, before Paul departed, he wrote to his friend, Timothy. Timothy was a young man in the faith that Paul had mentored, discipled, trained, helped make him a pastor at the church of Ephesus. And this is what he wrote to him. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. through eight. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And then he says these words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, who will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, all who have loved his appearing. He goes, there is a crown of righteousness waiting on those who have lived well, who have loved Christ, who have served him, who have made much of our lives. He goes, there is more for you. And he goes, and let me tell you why you should be a part of the family of God. And I pray that that's what our funeral services would do. It would simply say, I have lived my my life well. I have been poured out as a fragrant offering, a drink offering before God. The time of my departure, my end has come. Now let me tell you what awaits for those of you who love Jesus. The same thing that's awaiting me. Now this text right here is a text I've only used a handful of times in a funeral service over the last 21, 22, 23 years of ministry. It's all creeping up on me now. One of those, one of those men was a guy who lived across the street from me growing up. His name was Frankie Rinks. Frankie was a faithful man, gentle humble, kind. I had the privilege of doing his service, not because I was his pastor, but because I was his wife's pastor. And more than that, because I was a friend. He was a true picture of not only a servant, he was a true picture of what I would desire to be in a husband, as a man, and as a neighbor. Frankie was a life well-lived. So well-lived that that text doesn't get used very often. Why does it not get used very often? Because there's very few people that live their lives as a drink offering, a fragrant aroma before the Lord. But you and I can, and we should. And I pray that as a result of us thinking about our death, we would think now about, hey, let's plan for it now. Hey, okay, let's live our lives as a fragrant aroma, a drink offering poured out before God. So the question that you ask yourself, okay, where do I start with planning? So here it is. I'm gonna give you three things to plan for right now. One, for some of you, as Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, today is the day of your salvation. It's really hard to plan for a meaningful death if you're not living a meaningful life. And the only way you live a meaningful life, friends, is when you stop chasing the kingdom of the earth and you start chasing the kingdom of heaven. And so there's some of us in this room that you have been running too long. You're not where God wants you to be. You know it. Your heart is not in the position to where you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King. And today is the day of your salvation. It's a great day for you to acknowledge, you know what? I am sinful and I am running from the Lord. And get it, I get it. You've got justified reasons to run. You've been a part of the church and they've hurt you. And listen, the church is gonna hurt you. But listen, I would just encourage you to exalt your eyes further than me. 
further than an earthly man, earthly woman, people who've hurt you, exalt your eyes and lift them to the king. The closer you get to him, the more you come and see him, the more you'll be fulfilled. The closer you get to me, friends, the more you'll be disappointed. That's true. Look to him. He's the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who gives life. And the way it looks is to say, Lord, I'm tired of running. Some of you are running not because of the church, you're running because you think, you know what? There's a day in which I'm gonna turn. And for some of us in this room, the reason that we are here today is because we had a child. And we just knew, like, I can't raise my child the way that I've been living. And so you're here and that's why you're here. And I praise God for that. But more than that, don't bring them here just merely to, to give them something. Friends, give them something in the home. And that happens when you just bend yourself, when you surrender. And the classic symbol of surrender, y'all know what that is, don't you? Don't shoot! It's surrender. Which is interesting because the longer oftentimes that we follow God, the less we surrender. And the longer we run from him, the less we surrender. So what's interesting is, is whether we know him or don't know him, if not careful, our prideful hearts will cause us to what? Surrender less and less and less. Which is why this morning as our band led us on this campus for the first time in a long time, because oftentimes I'm distracted and I'm, I'm moving from place to place. I literally stood in the back of this room here in Wills Point and I just lifted my hands in total surrender. Like, Lord, thank you for this morning. And there's very few of us that do that because of our prideful hearts or because of our distraction. But listen, in our death, we get to point people to that. But more than that, now, like there's many of us in this room that need to surrender to God. For some of us, our prayer is, Lord, would you return to me the joy of your salvation? Lord, I know you, but my heart is not near you. Would you return me back? For some of us, we don't know him. And today is the day where we just surrender for the very first time. Lord, I'm tired of running. I'm, I'm not good at controlling my own life. I'm tired of being in the ditch. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of having to be pulled out time and time again. Lord, would just, would just do a new work in me. That's where it starts. But from there, it also means just to encourage the saints. I pray that today you would know the reason we gather is like a pepper rally to encourage one another. That's the whole purpose of us being here. It's just to remind one another, hey, don't, don't lose sight. Don't go, don't go astray, right? It's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter three, verse 13 and 14. But exhort one another every day. You've been exhorted, friends. And as long as it's called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. That's why we're here. If deed, we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. Friends, that's why we're here. We gather, say, hey, don't, don't be hardened. Don't go astray. Hey, come back. Don't, don't take your eyes off of him. He's the king. He's worth following. Serve him. Don't get caught up in civilian affairs, Paul says. That's why we're here, friends. And listen, not only should we do this when we're together, but friends, when you can get 10, 20, 30, 40, presumably a couple hundred people together at your funeral, man, encourage them. Encourage them now and encourage them then. And one of the best ways that we have to encourage friends today is when we leave today, there's invitations at the doors that can invite a friend who is not here this morning that needs to hear a meaningful message. And we're not gonna talk about our death next week. We're gonna talk about the one who really mattered, his death, Jesus. And your friends need to hear it. And the only way they're gonna come is if you invite them. 
And so I'm gonna ask that everyone in this room takes a, group, a, a stack of cards. There's not, I'm not asking for to take 20 or 30 cards, three, four, five cards and go invite a friend meaningfully. I'm not talking about anonymity. I'm not talking about going to Brookshire's and putting it under their windshield wiper. I'm talking about, hey, I know you're not going anywhere. I know you love Jesus. I know you've been hurt, but will you join me next week? For some of them, they don't know Jesus and they don't know that they need Jesus, but they need an invite. And I'm gonna ask you, you'd make your life count and your death count. And the third thing, as we think about, start planning now, is literally your funeral service. Start planning now. And I just wanna end with this. The words that David, the king of Israel, the one who said, Lord, would you teach me to measure my days? When his days finally came to an end, I want you to see what he said to his son, Solomon. This is what he says in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1-4. through four. He says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son. I love that. Son, get in here. And he came saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And then look what he says, be strong and show yourself a man. Men in here, I don't know if there's anything that would bless my heart more if I could say at the end of my life that I raised men who would show themselves as men. And that's my work on earth. But that's what he says about his son. Verse three, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way. This is what God told him. If your sons pay close attention, if they stay on the path, and they walk with me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David, the greatest king in all of Israel, at the height of the kingdom of Israel, he's about to die and he's about to hand the keys of the kingdom to his son. And he says, here's the key. Here's the key, Solomon. This is what the Lord said. Be faithful, walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. Don't stray to the right or to the left, but help him to illuminate and make your path straight. May he be a light and a lamp into your feet. May he protect you because blessed is the man who, not, who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It is on his law that he meditates day and night. Solomon, remember these words. Solomon, don't forget them. For when you do, our kingdom comes to an end. But if you walk and you keep your eyes upon me, not on man, not on shadows, not on sinking sand, but if you keep your eyes on me, you will be like a man, what Jesus said, that built his house on the rock. And though enemies come and though storms come and waters rise, hey, listen, your house won't be knocked down. For you built your house on the solid rock. So the question is, in my death, how do I encourage you? And how do I encourage my kiddos? Well, listen, I'm trying to do that right now as I live. But even more than that, I think there's some meaningful things that I can do. One, 
I'm creating a legacy drawer for my family. Everything you need about my life and my death is gonna be found in one place. I'm gonna make it super easy for you or for my bride or for whoever is part of my death. And friends, if, if it's our whole family that's gone, you need to go to this drawer and you need to pull out this folder and you'll have everything you need. And I'm gonna specify that in my death, a portion of it goes to my children and there's a portion, since there's four people that I'm concerned about in my life at this present time, beyond my wife, if we both go, there's three children and there's the work of the Lord. They're all gonna get a quarter. That's gonna be spelled out for them. They'll know. Nothing to quarrel about. Take whatever it is, a quarter, is yours, a quarter is yours, a quarter is yours, a quarter is going to the local church and to the work of the Lord forever. You're like, well, I don't have three kids, so how do I do it? I don't know, do it in thirds, do it in eighths, do it in tenths, I don't know. But think about how in your death does the kingdom of God go on. See, in our death, we think, oh, our kids get everything. But in life, our kids didn't get everything. Why do kids get everything in death? Friends, my desire is the kingdom of God would flourish. My kids are lucky to get anything. They ought to work for it. That seems harsh, right? But that's oftentimes not how we think about it. If there's anything my kids need more than anything, it's encouragement to walk in the structure of the Lord. And so every kid of mine has a Bible that is theirs, that I have worked through. That it's got daddy's writing, it's got daddy's notes, it's got their name, it's got my name, and it's theirs. Every kid is gonna have a video of me recorded, specifically as I say, hey, baby girl, I love you. And the world is gonna be hard. And the longer you live, the more you need to know that you don't need me, you need a heavenly father who loves you. And he promises you, baby girl, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't hear my voice and you can't see me in the ways that you can now. But you need to know that because you've trusted in the Lord and because I have too, that over the hill, we will rejoice together. And you won't know me the same way. And that won't be important to you because you're gonna know your heavenly father. You're gonna know your true husband. His name is Jesus. He is your faithful friend. He cares for you in ways that I never could. And you're gonna see that I tried to point you to him, but one day you'll see the fulfillment of what a real father was. And I can't wait for that. Hey, Brady, don't forget, buddy, that truth matters. That as you grow older, your heart will grow deceitful. And if you're not careful, you'll wanna move to the right or the left. You wanna protect your name. You wanna protect yourself. You wanna be dishonest to get ahead. Friend, hey, Brady, stay faithful to the cause. You get one name, buddy. That's it. You get one. You can never, you can never gain it back. It, it's, more, it's worth more than gold or silver or anything else in life. Hey, friend, I love you. Honor God. Walk in his ways. Hey, Caleb, man, hey, use your creative, create, creativity, buddy. The older I get, the less creative I am. Hey, Resist that urge. God created you in his image. Be an image bearer, buddy. Keep doing what you do. Keep excelling. Keep creating videos. Keep drawing things. Don't ever let that mind be, be put on a hold, buddy. Don't let the world tell you that, that you have to be dull. You're not dull. Hey, keep rejoicing in who you are. And friend, quit drawing these things and draw more of these things. 
Because these things are temporal and they don't satisfy. But if you'll point them to this one, that's the key. Friends, that's what a death should look like. And so when you come to my funeral, I really do hope I'm in a purple suit, okay? But I hope that you don't walk away with that. I hope you walk away with, with music that points you to a savior, with a message that reminds you of hope. And I pray that it's not merely one person who is stiff and dull that gives me a message or that gives you a message for that matter. But I pray that it's man after man after man for an hour and a half, not because it's centered on me, but because it's man after man after man. Hey, let me tell you of this guy's faithfulness. Hey, Brady, let me tell you the ways that your dad loved me and I know you saw his love. Hey, Blakely, let me tell you the ways that that you were, were lucky to have a dad. Let me tell you that. And then, Kelly, let me tell you why your husband loved you. And I pray that that's what your funeral would be like too. I'll close with this. I serve here with two other men as elders in our church. One of those men is named Charlie McMath. Now, if you know Charlie McMath, Charlie is the king of taking work, meaningless work at that, and making it into more work. Okay? Now, you might be like, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, so you have a meeting, and then when you walk out of that meeting, there's somebody that has to take notes about every meeting, put it into an Excel document, and then send it to everybody. And then he shows up to every meeting, and he gives you the same printout of what he sent you. And I'm like, dude, I don't need the printout, too. You gave me, the, like, the digital copy. I don't need all of that. So what he does, he comes to a meeting, hands me all this paper. As soon as he leaves, I throw all that paper in the trash because I already got a file. So in Charlie's case, several years ago, he shows up and he, go, and he gives me this packet. And I'm like, hey, what is this? He goes, it's my funeral. And I'm like, well, what do you get? I mean, what do you want? He's like, you're doing my funeral. And, and he says, and here's everything you need. And, and I open it up and it's got his obituary. It's got his pallbearers. It's got everything that you would possibly need to know. Barbie has no need to go anywhere. She can come to me if she can't find something because I have everything you would need from insurance policy information to funeral planning to everything. It's all done. Notes to kids, all of it. Does it it make sense? And in a lot of ways, he inspired me. Like, dude, get with it. Why? Because as kids mourn, or as a wife mourns, hey, don't rob them of being able to look to Christ because they're looking to every other decision that has to be made. Why not do some of that for them? That's a legacy. And some of you are like, oh, that seems like overwhelming. Absolutely, it's overwhelming. Well, what a great way to serve your family. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help me to live a life that counts. And I pray that in my death, I would point people to you. And I pray that everything that we do, from video recordings to handwritten notes to um, picking out songs and pallbearers and all those things. I pray everything we do would point people to you. Lord, would you help us to do that? Lord, would you help us to reflect Christ not only in death, but also in life? And I pray, Lord, that the longer that we draw near to you, the more that people see you in us. And I pray that as we die, they don't grieve us as if they'll never see us again, but they grieve as if Jesus has died and rose again and has conquered sin, death, and the grave, and we have victory in him. Lord, may we grieve well because of what you've done. And may we be able to echo the words of Paul, 
To live is Christ, but to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray.